Well, as many of you know, I think, uh, I grew up in the Gig Harbor area, and I went to Peninsula High School, the, the green and gold. Um, I was an average student and an average athlete, but I had an above-average passion for the sport of wrestling. I was on the wrestling team, and I would work out all in the off-season for wrestling, and I would do freestyle wrestling in the summer. The only problem was I wasn't very talented at wrestling. I was good, but not great. I made it to state a couple times, but never was on the podium or anything like that. You could look my name up. I wouldn't be on there. Um, I worked hard to discipline myself, and I kid you not, um, you know, so wrestling has three rounds, and I was like, two years in a row, won the award for most third period points. I would just outlast people. It was my claim to fame. If I couldn't be good, I would just outlast people. So that was me. Um, contrast that with the other end of the spectrum with my friend Jeremy, who was also on the team. Jeremy was the kind of kid that was just loaded with talent. Like, he would never work out outside of practice, and he was just so good. And, you know, like, I was watching my diet and cutting weight. I had, like, 4.5% body fat, and Jeremy was pudgy, probably from the munchies, and he, he would eat soda and junk food for lunch. It was just nauseating, and by the end of our, you know, junior year, his record was almost as good as mine. It was like, how are you doing this? At the beginning of our senior year, our whole team was having a rough start to the season, Jeremy in particular. Our coach was a giant of a man. His name was Bill Stout. He's since deceased, but I mean, that tells you. He, he was on the practice squad of the Kansas City Chiefs as a defensive lineman. He was massive and scary and intimidating, and he would usually yell liberally to motivate us to do what he wanted us to do. One practice, we were so bad. He, instead of yelling, he cut the music, he turned off the lights, and we all knew, oh my gosh, we're in trouble. Silence except for the hum of the fans in the gym that were trying to get our pubescent sweat smell out. And he said, follow me, in a calm voice. We walked out of the gym into a hallway that spanned between the locker room door and the coach's office, and there he stopped and started looking at the wall. We stopped and looked up at the wall. And there on the wall was the lineage of Peninsula High School Wrestling's program, in the 70s, early 80s, it was quite the deal to be a wrestler at Peninsula. And there were the names of the state champions and the pictures of the championship teams. And he just sat and stared at it. And then he said, Rick Anderley used to run with bags of concrete on his shoulders. This state champion, one state with a broken wrist. And this state champion beat a three-time state champion when he was a freshman. Because he never gave up. What our coach was trying to do was tell us about being bigger than just ourselves, that when you put on the green and gold of Peninsula, you represent a lineage of people that have been badass before you. And you can either get on board with this, is what he said, or you can walk away. That night, three of my teammates never came back, but Jeremy did. And Jeremy got serious and he went on to be a great, great wrestler. What our coach was telling us wasn't to be something we weren't, but to live into who we are. You are a Peninsula High School wrestler. That's who you are. Now show me. All throughout his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul has been saying in so many words, be 
who you are. The Corinthians had divisions within their congregation, but Paul would say, that's not you. You are the body of Christ. How can you be divided into personality cults? The Corinthians were struggling with arrogance and pride, but Paul said, that's not you. Don't you remember how humble you were when you accepted the gospel? Don't you remember what good news it was to you who were lowly in society to become part of the family of God? Arrogance isn't who you are. The Corinthians were struggling with sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, adulterous sex, pretty much anything sex. (laughs) And Paul exhorted them saying, that's not who you are. You are image bearers of the living God. You are God's representatives on earth. Don't ruin your life. Don't ruin other people's lives along the way. And most recently, Paul was addressing a group of Corinthian Christians who thought it was within their rights to go to uh, pagan worship gatherings at pagan temples. They believed that because they had special knowledge, the knowledge that, hey, there's only one true God, we worship him as Christians, so that means that the pagan, you know, little gods that we go to the temples with, they're not real, so we might as well be able to worship at those temples. Paul agrees with them, of course, that there is only one God, and he agrees with them that the pagan gods are false, but he knows better than to believe that participating in pagan worship was good for them, because he knew that participating in pagan worship also included things like gluttony and drunkenness and sex. Uh, outside of marriage with prostitutes. And he urged them to practice self-discipline because of how participating in such activities could influence Christians with weaker consciences. Instead, what Paul says is even if you have a right to do these things, sometimes the loving thing to do is to give up your right for the health and goodness of someone else, a brother or sister in Christ. His concern in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 seems to be the weaker Corinthian Christian who might be influenced to go to these pagan centers of worship and fall right back into it. But in chapter 10, Paul acts like a coach and takes the Corinthian Christians out into the proverbial hallway to see the Hall of Fame. I want to take a look at this passage together and encourage you to stand as we read 1 Corinthians 10. 1 through 13. You'll notice it starts with the word for. He's referencing what we talked about last week, where he encouraged people to be disciplined in the faith. Okay? For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did 
and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to humanity. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Lord, as we enter into this text that your servant Paul uh, wrote down to the Corinthians, I pray that you would help us um, so far removed in time and in distance, in language and culture, help us to see what he's meaning and help us to hear you, Holy Spirit, um, what you're saying to us through this text today. And I pray, as always, as you reveal the truth to us, that we would have the courage to obey. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you were looking for the story that shaped the people of God most until the birth of Christ, you could look no further, or you wouldn't have to look any further than the story of the Exodus. What a great drama. It's a showdown between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. It's the deliverance of the weakest group of people, a group of slaves, right from under the nose of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. It's a story that includes the megalomaniac Pharaoh against the humble, doubting, speech-impaired Moses. And it's the story of God delivering his people through miracle after miracle after miracle. Everyone knew the story that Paul's writing to. The Corinthians certainly would have. Because remember, the Corinthian church read the Bible at church, and their Bible was the Hebrew Scriptures. That's all they had. They had the Hebrew Scriptures, and they had the stories of the apostles, their eyewitnesses of Jesus. Letters like 1 Corinthians were literally just letters that they're reading for the first time. They're not even Scripture yet for a couple hundred more years. So these Corinthian Christians knew the Exodus story inside and out. They knew all about how God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, how when they were pinned with their backs against the Sea of Reeds and Pharaoh's army bearing down on them, how God split the sea and allowed them to walk through to safety on dry land while swallowing up the Egyptians. They knew how all those long years in the desert, God was present with them in a cloud of fire and smoke, how he supernaturally provided food and drink, um, food from heaven and drink out of a rock. God chose the weak Israelites to be his representatives to the world. He chose to work through them so that the world would come to know God's greatness, not their greatness. That the world would come to know God's deep love and desire to bring all nations into a place of blessing in his name. See, God elected, chose the Israelites for a purpose not because he liked them better than anyone else or because they were somehow more holy or righteous than anyone else. In fact, they were holy and righteous only because they were chosen by God. And what Paul is saying is that even though they saw with their own eyes the power of God, right before them, splitting the sea like that, and experienced with their own lives the presence of God, and tasted with their own mouths the food and water of God, 
I passed through the waters of death to new life as the people of God. Even after all of that experience, the, they were not immune to falling into sin that would lead to their destruction. Paul is giving the Corinthian church a warning. What did the Israelites do that was so bad in the first place? What could they have done that would bring about such judgment? Well, we get a huge hint uh, by Paul's quote of Exodus 32. It's the same one Sophia read just a minute ago. In that passage, Moses has gone up on the mountain of Horeb to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And I guess he's gone a little too long because everyone else, the Israelites down below, were getting restless and anxious. And they said, maybe he's not coming back. Maybe he got zapped by God up there or something. We don't know. So what they did is they got all their gold together, they threw it in the fire, and they made, they molded a golden calf, and they began to worship it. The Bible literally says in Exodus 32, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That's the literal word uh, there in the Hebrew and later in the Greek. It doesn't so, sound so bad. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, I ate the other day and then played with my kids after dinner. So that's, it sounds kind of normal. Um, but that's until you get behind the text and what it actually means. You see, Eating and drinking around pagan worship was associated with gluttony and drunkenness. And the word play in Hebrew, uh, at least in biblical Hebrew, is always associated with sexual orgies that associated this type of worship. So now you get the picture. Moses is going up to meet with the God who has delivered the Israelites, done all these amazing things. He's getting the law uh, to come and bless them with, and they get bored. And they begin to worship in this way. And they have their, their food and their drink. And then they get up and they are running around like crazy. They turn to idols. Now think about that for a minute. We, human beings, Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says, we, men and women, are made in the image of God. We are, in Greek, his icons. You might even say we're his you know, representatives or little little icons of God. We are, we are created to reflect his character and creativity and his good reign on earth. And we become just like that which we worship. When we worship God, like you're doing right now, we become a little bit more and more like the God we worship. But when we worship a false idol, be it a statue or success in our career or the pursuit of pleasure, we become a caricature of God's image. In this case, the Israelites began worshiping pagan idols, and second, they exchanged the beauty of sex within marriage for a perverted form of it uh, at this pagan style of worship. Third, they put the Lord, God, to the test. He warned them against idolatry time and time again, and yet they tried him by trying to get away with it. And fourth, they grumbled against God and against his anointed servant Moses. They complained that it would actually be better to be in the service of Egypt rather than wander the desert in the service of God. Even though he rescued them and showed his great love and compassion for them. You see, when we start trading the worship of God for the worship of idols, you and I began to relate to God in unhealthy ways. Because our idols always let us down, we think, God must always let me down. But why was Paul 
So I get why the Israelites fell, what their deal was, but why was Paul reminding the Corinthians of Israel's failure in the desert after the Exodus? I mean, that was way hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, over a thousand years before this event. I think Paul is bringing it up to the Corinthians precisely because that's the exact ways that they were sinning. Like the Israelites, the Corinthian Christians were participating in idol worship. Oh, they may have thought that since there's only one God, that they were going to pagan temples, and that wasn't such a big deal. But you always become like that which you worship. And like the Israelites, the Corinthians were putting themselves in social positions at these pagan temples where there were gluttony and drunkenness and orgies, where all of those things were just commonplace. Jesus had died to forgive the Corinthians, to remake them in God's image. How could they then, his people, treat the Lord with such disdain? How could they abuse women who were also made in God's image? How could they dishonor their wives to whom they've made a covenant before God with? And like the Israelites, the Corinthians had been putting the Lord to the test. They were presuming on the kindness of God. They were unrepentant in their sinfulness. In fact, they were trying to make, uh, rationalize it and make excuses for it. And like the Israelites, the Corinthians began grumbling against the Lord's anointed representative to them, who was, in this case, Paul. They were challenging Paul and complaining that the gospel he was preaching was offensive Paul, at this point, has every right to just chew them out. I mean, we're 10 chapters in. Haven't you been annoyed by the Corinthians yet? They're acting foolishly. But instead, Paul wants to encourage them to become who they really are. He wants to not say, you're condemned, you're done. He wants to say, this is the life you can have. He's always pointing them toward life. The Israelites were chosen by God and delivered from Egypt through God's mighty deeds. Paul wants to affirm that the Corinthians are part of that same story. In fact, the Corinthians are part of a better chapter of that same story. See, like the Israelites, they passed through the sea, but the Corinthians had passed through the waters of baptism. They are new creations. And like the Israelites had the cloud of God's presence, the Corinthians had the Holy Spirit. They are the temple of God's presence. And like the Israelites had the bread from heaven, the Corinthians had the bread of communion, they had Jesus. And like the water out of the rock, the Corinthians had the cup of Christ, the sacrament of Christ. So in short, the Corinthians had every privilege that Moses and the Israelites had, even more. They had Jesus. And here is where Paul detects three major problems for them. First, as the new people of God, Saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. They were, by nature, saved. They thought, the Corinthians, thought that somehow the grace of Jesus was something that you could just secure. I prayed this thing, I went through the motions, I'm in, and now I can live however I want because it's just for the future. They thought that their faith in Jesus had no real bearing on their life in the flesh. So they made the mistake that people often make in thinking that knowing certain facts about Jesus is the same thing as knowing Jesus and obeying Jesus. Second, their pagan background most likely influenced their view of the sacraments. 
See, in the pagan world, religious practices were seen as magical. So if I wanted good crops, I would go to the goddess uh, of Cori, and I, you know, she's the goddess of good crops. Let's make it And crops. So, you know, I go there, and if I say the right liturgical things, if I say the right words, then magically my crops will be okay. Or if I eat this kind of food at the, peg, at the, the, the god of Schoon, my computer's going to work right. It would be awesome if I could, yeah, actually. No, I wouldn't. I would never bow down. But <clears throat> it was that kind of thing. It was a magical thing. I, I eat this food in this God's temple. I get such and such. So they were seeing the sacraments of Christ, the bread and the cup, as magical. Hey, as long as I show up and partake in communion, I'm safe. It's like, it, it's like a magic thing that, that means I can live however I want Monday through Saturday. They thought that the sacraments could make them holy without, without actually changing the way that they were living. And third, because they had this magical view of the sacraments and believed that they were immune from the dangers of sin, they were then blindly heading down a road of self-destruction. So as a loving pastor, Paul sets out to warn this church that he had planted three years earlier that they were in very serious peril. They had a disease of the soul. Basically, you guys think you're safe because you're part of the new people of God through your baptism, but if Moses and the Israelites didn't escape judgment, how on earth do you think you'll escape judgment by doing the very same things? It's a pretty stark warning. It could even be taken as offensive. It is hard. I don't know about you, but it is hard to hear words of conviction from another human being. Most of the time, it's offensive. You, you, your self-defense wants to rise up and make an excuse really quick. You don't like to hear that, hey, I noticed uh, you know, such and such thing. But Paul knows that confronting the Corinthian church with a warning is the most loving thing that he can do. Our words, our thoughts, our focus, our finances, that all of those things reveal where our hearts really are. And the fact that the Corinthians are challenging Paul's authority and grumbling among themselves, all to rationalize going to a pagan temple, revealed just how deeply their hearts were deceived. And notice this passage is not a passage saying, you are bad people for doing such and such a thing. Instead, it's a pastoral warning. See, on the one hand, Paul was saying, you are walking down a road that leads to death. Think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for the way, the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many going down that path. The gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Just a little further down that same chapter, Jesus will say to people, you know, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? There's going to be a lot of people in the end who, who call me Lord all their life, but they never change the way they live. So Jesus warns people like that, and Paul is now warning the church in that same spirit. On the other hand, a diagnosis need not end in condemnation. It's like, and sorry if you're a smoker out there, I'm just, it was an example that came to me, but it's like saying to a smoker, hey, guess what? Smoking will destroy your lungs and probably your finances. It will eventually lead to death. 
The diagnosis or warning is not evil spirit or, or meant to point out a habit uh, you know, to, to, be, um, to make somebody feel bad. It's a love-motivated warning. You now have an opportunity to keep walking the road that leads to destruction, or you could make a change. You could choose life. And that is such good news. Notice that Paul does not give a terminal diagnosis. I've been with people who have had a terminal diagnosis. There's not a lot of hope this side of the resurrection. But Paul is not giving a terminal diagnosis. He's not condemning the Corinthians. He's saying, if you keep this up, the way that you're going is going to lead to death. But I've got good news. The Lord is with you, and he will provide a way for you to change. Paul doesn't give a list of rules, but he gives a gracious warning. Idolatry, immorality, testing the Lord, grumbling and complaining all lead to death. They all lead, the way I like to think of it is, they lead to a shriveled soul, a shrunken life that is just, just a shadow of the life that God really wants to give us. It's just a wisp of the life that Jesus died to give us. And it begs the question, are there any attachments in life that you and I have that are killing us from the inside out? Maybe it's the grumbling thing, a, a complaining, critical spirit. That is a hard way to live. When we focus on the negatives in life, the cup being half empty, we block our ability to see God's graciousness. We block our ability to receive his joy. For those of you who are on social media, here's a little test you could do. I, I did it on myself, actually. Um, actually, I'm posting a lot less things lately, but um, I can check my own heart. But check your last 10 postings on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is you use. Are they primarily critical and complaining? Or are they encouraging to someone or adding value um, to the world? Do they cut someone down or build someone else up, up besides yourself? Being grateful and being thankful is a discipline. Like in, in Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline, there's a chapter on celebration, which I don't do all that well, and there's a chapter on thanksgiving, just taking stock of how good God is. That is a spiritual discipline. Or what, what about idolatry or, or immorality? Does Paul's warning apply to you in some way, in shape, or form? You know, so often in our culture when we talk about adultery or uh, immorality or, uh, or idolatry, we think of the big things like substance abuse, or we think of pornography addiction or approval addiction. And, you know, part of the reason that those are common things is because they affect a high percentage of us. But it doesn't have to be just these big, overt things. We're usually pretty aware of those things, but what about some of the, the smaller things that, uh, that cripple us? Soul-sucking idols don't have to be big ones. So I, I found newfound freedom from something that's pretty embarrassingly trivial, but I'll just share it with you because maybe you resonate with something in this smaller area. I recently gave up a game that was on my phone. 
And it was literally sucking my margins. Margins between meeting, margins with my family. Oh, I'll just slip in five minutes here. Oh, ten minutes there. If I just play for a few more minutes, I'll get to the next level. And then, what? There's just more levels. And it sounds kind of funny, but here's how sad it was in December as I'm walking and praying over the neighborhood. I am convicted, and I hear the Lord say, erase that game, erase that game. And I honestly said, like the Corinthians were trying to rationalize, I can do it. I'll just play it on my day off. I can just confine it to an hour a day. Five minutes here. I'll, I'll even make a schedule, I said. And that's when I knew how gross it was to make a schedule to play a game, right? <laughs> so it's partly funny. It's partly really sad and humbling to have to share that. But ever since erasing that, like at the turn of the new year, I absolutely feel more substantial. That, that's the way I, I describe it. It's, yeah, I get a little more productive and things like that, but I feel... It's, it's more than just the, the minutes and hours that I get back each week. It's, I don't feel like a slave anymore. And I feel more spiritual authority, more power in a good way, um, more whole. I don't know if you resonate with that. When, when you've been tripped up by something and you're able to, in the grace of God, let it go. But you become more human. You guys, that's, that's what Paul's really talking about, is not wanting us to put these other things, whether they're small or they're giant, before our relationship with God, before being who we really are in Christ. So what about you? I leave you with the question, what does Paul's warning to the Corinthians convict you of, if anything? Maybe nothing. Then you can rejoice. Practice that discipline of thanksgiving. But chances are there's something that he's inviting you, the Lord is inviting you to give up so that you can be truly free. Hear the good news afresh. Jesus died for you and I because he knew and knows that we absolutely easily get trapped in sin. It's no shock to him. Pretty drastic move to die on a cross for that. He gets it. Paul writes this letter because he gets it. He's under no delusions that we're all supposed to be perfect. So there's the pressure's off. It's okay to be a sinner. The invitation then is because Christ has done this and extends his grace to us and because he offers us a way out, will you walk through that door into a new open space of life and freedom? There is a way out. There is a way out. Lord, thank you so much, not only for dying to forgive us of past things or even present things. We so appreciate that. But you also died and rose to give us fullness of life, life that can begin right now, not just when we're in the grave and have resurrected life. And I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters that we would walk freedom of Christ, that we would let no earthly thing shackle us and stunt our growth and becoming more and more like you. Have mercy, Lord.